Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. What's up, Gophers? KubeCon CloudNativeCon is happening next March in Amsterdam. Early bird registration pricing is in effect right now. Plus, as a special bonus for GoTime listeners, you can get an extra 10% off the already low early bird registration pricing by using the code KCEUGOTIME. Again, K-C-E-U-G-O-T-I-M-E. That's KC for KubeCon, EU for Europe, and GoTime for GoTime. You have to hurry up, though, because this coupon code is only active when early bird registration is active, and that ends November 8th. Check the show for links to learn more and register. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community that's live with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTime FM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of GoTime. I am your host, Johnny Barsico, and joining me today is none other than Marty Schock, best known for Blevy, the full text search and indexing library, of course, built in Go. So welcome, Marty. How have you been? Thank you, Johnny. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very surprised that you have not been on a podcast talking about Blevy for this. This is a first long. for me. And all right, you, you've been to conferences, you've talked about it, and the trials and tribulations of working on that project at times. <laughs> I was watching actually a talk you gave, I think uh, more than a year or so ago now at uh, GopherCon uh, UK. That was GopherCon UK, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And and I really appreciated sort of how you went through this sort of this journey, right, of basically you know re envisioning the the indexing engine behind the project. Uh, and we'll get into sort of a, sort of the the reasoning and why you did that. But basically, that's something I wish more talks were were sort of given about, right? Sort of the process, the journey of actually uh, creating, of actually going back to the drawing board and saying, you know what, we've run out of time. Like you know, like <laughs> being faced with those sort of uh, difficult times in a project, whether they be open source projects or things at work. Uh, I really appreciated that, and this is something that I hope we're going to get into as well. But uh, yeah, like uh, um, for those who don't know, uh, you are also on the East Coast. Yeah, I am on the East Coast. I live just outside of Washington D.C. in uh, Vienna, Virginia. That's right. That's right. And then, yeah, we've run into each other a few times at the uh, uh, Go DC. Is it Go DC? Yep. It is. Uh, I think it's. Well, I think it's, they might go by GoLang DC still, but right, uh, right. I haven't haven't gotten them to retire that name. But the group <laughs> is still active, and uh, I think they had a meeting here in September. I unfortunately couldn't attend that one, but uh, yeah, so right. alive and well. Good, good. Yeah, I'm. I'm always happy to hear of of meetups that are thriving, that are sort of uh, serving the local communities, and that's something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, but yeah, last time we saw each other uh, at the at the uh, um, meetup was like a couple of years ago, maybe. It's um, been a while. It's been a little while. Yeah. So it's it's glad to see you and 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 to see that you're still doing your thing. So you work for Couchbase, yeah? No, uh, I left Couchbase uh, oh, really? last year in uh, 28, October 2018. I left Couchbase. Uh, as some of your listeners may know I've been working there and working on uh, Blevy, uh, search yeah. library. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know the time had come. And uh, one of the exciting things about working on an open source library is that you know it, the project was started by Couchbase, uh, mm-hmm. but it gets adopted by these other companies. Uh, and so what I decided to pursue was an opportunity to work with some of the other companies that were out there using Blevy in a different way, right? And it's mm-hmm. always eye-opening to when you get that chance to see your same code base but being used for some whole different application, right? right. Uh, and so I, I was very fortunate. Uh, did did some contract work with uh, two different companies. And that really ultimately led me to where I am now. I've just actually started a company called Beluge Labs. And what we're trying to do is get companies that are using Blevy on board uh, to support Blevy uh, in a in a sort of a new way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could probably have a whole separate podcast just on on uh, 
sort of like the, the economics of open source, right? So <laughs> yeah. uh, here we are trying to support Blevy and open source search and go in a slightly different way. And that's just getting off the ground now. So mm -hmm. you guys will all have to stay tuned for more information on that later. But that's been keeping me busy uh, is sort of figuring out how to take Blevy to the next level in terms of, you know, successful uh, open source. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ugh, more power to you, man. It's because... You know the startup game is is uh, it, it is you have to have the right mindset, the, the right sort of uh, patience, and, and a boatload of energy to really sort of uh, um, um, give it your all and sort of a day to day. You know, with the, there's there's like a string of failures right until you hit success, right? Sure, so. <laughs> sure. And and I should clarify, like we're really not approaching this from the perspective of like a startup that's got some hot new product that's going to get VC investment. What we're really saying is, you know, hey, if we have these libraries that have this community interest. And companies are using them, like, can we all pull together our effort enough that we all sort of get what we want out of it, right? Right. And just be sustainable uh, is really what we're focusing on. So it's it's a little different mindset. Uh, and uh, stay tuned. You guys will hopefully hear more about how that goes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. So the the so you, you talk, touched a little bit on the sort of the relationship between um, Couchbase and, and, and Blevy. So what what brought that on? So obviously Couchbase is you know makers of a popular uh, database technology. So where does Blevy fit into that? Sure. So this is all the way back in. Uh, 2014, you know, Couchbase was, you know, has this, uh, you know, obviously storing data is, is, is the primary thing that databases do, right? But then you, you, people need to access their data. And they're always looking for different ways to sort of, uh, you know, express the kinds of things that they're looking for. Right? It could be a key value lookup where you already know the key. Uh, it could be a SQL query where you're writing a query to describe the sets of records that you want returned. Uh, or it could be now this new thing, search, right, where you're able to sort of do full-text search capabilities across your documents. So Couchbase was in this position of uh, looking to add that capability to their product. We were already adopting Go at that point uh, and had been successful using Go to, from our perspective, the, the value out of Go was really faster development time, right? Like maybe we could write a higher performing thing in C, but there's also a chance that it's like crashes all the time and the code quality is no good and you know and it takes maybe twice as long to get it to that same point right so it's goes always been a very like to me it's like it's an engineer's mindset right it's like it's the right trade-offs for what you need right now so again we we set out to to write what we needed in go but also we had this vision from the very beginning of making it open source and i don't mean like open source in name only which is what you see a lot of companies initiate or they write something first and then they open and source it later. And, but there's not really that sort of like community working on something together approach. We really set out to build like a true open source community around it. And I think, again, you can debate how successful or not successful we are, but you know, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to set out to do. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of what we accomplished, uh, you know, as, as led by Couchbase. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool because you know I've been aware of of Blevy for for quite a while. How, how old is the project at this point? Like I said, 2014 is probably like the oldest commit you will see. I mean, it could have been late 2013 when some of the first draft versions were coming together. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's about that's a roughly about about the right time frame. Okay, so. You know, we've mentioned some terminology already that we 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 are definitely going to need to sort of uh, ground our users in. So we talked about sort of a um, full text uh, search. We talk about indexing. So when when as a developer, like usually when I think about okay, how do we sort of uh, I need to find like a string right inside of a, a larger body of string right. So the naive approach would be like to say, well, let me just you know import the strings package and do a do a you know index right and and locate the position where it shows up right. But it's obviously it's it's not as simple. Is that like what is full text search? What is indexing at its core? Sure. So I mean, the basic way I think about it is you really have the the overall process divided into two phases. We think of indexing, which is the process by which you take your sets of things that you want to work with. Documents is another word you'll hear us use a lot, and you're gonna like ingest those and build the index, right? So the idea is your computer. You're gonna take spend the CPU time to crunch some things around in the documents, and ultimately create some representation we call the index, right? That could be in memory only, or more commonly, you also want to be able to persist that to disk, right? So that you can sort of stop your process, start it again later, and so forth. And so all of that's what we talk about the, the indexing phase. 
And then once you have an index built, uh, you often want to then use it to ser run searches, right? So the idea is, like you said, I have some notion of like, I want to find all the documents that have this word or this set of strings. And so that's your search phase uh, of, of operation there. And so the basic idea is you want to think in advance about what kinds of searches you want to run. And ultimately, that'll help you decide what the right index to build is, right? There isn't, uh, it's not like a one-size-fits-all solution, right? You do need to give thought to what kinds of searches do I want to run and then make sure that I build the appropriate index to sort of serve those kinds of queries later. So the, at its most sort of like when you were first sort of envisioning, right, what, what Blevy was going to be, what could be, like what, what sort of prompted you to build your own versus sort of uh, look for some other maybe op open source, you know, popular project out there, you know, to do what you needed to do? Yeah, so I mean, to be, like completely honest, like everyone would probably agree that Lucene is probably considered to be like the state of the art in terms of the space for full text search. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It's open source as well. It's written in Java and it has a lot of people that have used it, right? Elasticsearch is really a whole company and well, starting with a server and then a whole now whole suite of things that started by building on top of Lucene. There's Solar, which is another product that's out there that's again built on top of Lucene. And Lucene has contributors from both Elasticsearch and Solar, like, you know, pouring uh, improvements into it. So that's really what I would say is the state of the art. Um, and and by state of the art, what I mean is sort of like it's proven, it's been around for a while, and it's like, you're not just going to sit down and say, well, let's just rewrite Lucene or let's just port Lucene. Like, those are big efforts, right? Because just the sheer number of like 15, 20 years of effort going into these projects. Now, in Couchbase's position, it was sort of a unique situation, right? Again, I put on the engineering hat, right? Could we have just used Lucene? Yes. But at the time, uh, nothing else inside of the Couchbase server world was using Java, right? So it would have been this like first thing pulling in like, oh, now we need to have a JVM available. Oh, well, now we need to think about how do we distribute the product, right? Now the, the Oracle licensing might mean there's some complexities to how we distribute things. So at the time, it was sort of a reluctance to sort of pull down the full thing of Java. And also, our, our goal was really you know, again, taking this sort of 80-20 approach. Can we deliver the most important 80% of Elasticsearch or Lucene? Can we, like, pull in that kind of capability? We don't need to build the whole thing. There's this long tail of features we may never get to. If we can just build that most important part, that ought to be enough to, to like, meet our customers' needs. And then let's, let's learn and iterate from that, right? If customers say, hey, this is great. We really do need the, the other 20%. Well, then we'll make the investment and keep building it out. But it, that was the approach that led us to, to building it. Uh, I would say also just a you know perusal around the Go ecosystem. There wasn't really a good full text solution at that time. So again, the the notion of like could we have just used something else in Go? We didn't see what we were looking for at that time. And again, we we perceived that to be an opportunity, right? That mm -hmm. was a chance for us to contribute back to the Go community and create some value uh, and share that with other people. Right, kind of a like a, a right place, right time kind of kind of situation. A lot of things, yeah. I would definitely say that timing was key. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Datadog. Datadog is cloud monitoring as a service. See inside any stack, anytime, at any scale, anywhere. So what's new with Datadog? Coming off the heels of Dash 2019, Datadog's annual conference about building and scaling the next generation of applications, infrastructure, and technical teams, we have a lot to cover. Serverless functions, Datadog serverless view gives you complete visibility into your code running on AWS Lambda. Browser logs, you can now send logs directly to Datadog from web browsers or other JavaScript clients for full stack visibility. Network performance monitoring, this enables you to visualize the flow of network traffic in cloud-based or hybrid environments. Mobile application. Datadog now has a mobile app to make it easier to triage issues when you're on call or on the go. Real user monitoring. This enables you to visualize and analyze the performance of your front-end applications as seen by your users. And a final list of what's new, log rehydration, metrics from logs, watchdog for infrastructure metrics, metrics without limits, tracing without limits, trace outliers, and so much more. Head to datadog.com slash go time to learn more and get a free t-shirt. Once again, datadog.com slash go time.
Let's talk a little bit more about the mechanics behind searching and indexing, right? So the simplest example we can think of, right, is one where if I say, go find me a word or term, right, or phrase in a dictionary, generally you might be able to sort of flip through the pages and, and sort of find the appropriate letter or whatever it is and peruse and do a sort of a linear scan kind of thing to find what you're looking for. But often, you know, you flip back to the back of the book, right, to the index, as it were, and you identify the term you're looking for or something that closely matches it and then you kind of jump to where you need to approximately and then then you're doing another scan right so there's a multi-step process to this right so the naive way of thinking is that well let me just you know toss some terms inside of a map or something and then do lookups you know but it definitely to me like i don't know a ton about this way of building software but there's some complexity there's more involved to it there can you talk a little bit more about sort of the process of an indexing what is that about Sure. So as you mentioned, the, the notion of an index at the back of the book really is a great uh, sort of mental model for people to have to think about how the search uh, in index works. Uh, the first data structure is something we sort of loosely call the term dictionary. And that's just the list of all the terms that your documents use. So again, if you were to think, again, at the back of the book index analogy, the term dictionary would just be the list of all those words, right? Every term or word that was used in the book, that's what we call the term dictionary. Now that's a, a sort of, I would say, like a logical data structure. And what I mean is there's all kinds of different like computer science data structures we could use to actually implement that. But for now, let's, let's leave that aside. Let's just talk about like logically, we start with that term dictionary, which is all of the terms that are used. So if you think about it, if you, wanna, if you get some new book and you say, hey, I want you to index this document as well, one of the first things we do in the indexing phase is we have to sort of go through that whole document and sort of find all of the unique terms that are used and keep track of not just where they occurred, like in the case of a book, on what page it would have occurred on. But in terms of the index we're building, we're also going to keep track of like byte offsets or position offsets inside of your document. And that's going to, again, that's not needed for the simple search of just which page did this thing happen on. But if you want to get into like phrase searches and more advanced searches later on, you need additional information about where those documents occurred. So that's the first, I would say, logical data structure is what I call the term dictionary. The second one that's important for search is something we call the postings list. The idea is that for each one of those terms, we now need the set of documents which happen to use that term. So again, in the book analogy, the postings list is that list of page numbers that use the term. But in our index, that's going to be the list of sort of document IDs or identifiers for the documents. And again, that's at the logical level, once we get to the the next level, there's all kinds of computer science data structures we could use to sort of what's going to be an, an efficient postings list, right? And there's different technological choices that we can go into there. So the key is really like a two-phase thing. If you say, I want find all the documents that use the term Johnny, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by going to that term dictionary, find Johnny, and then that's going to give me the postings list, and I can iterate that postings list and get, now, okay, now I know all the documents that use that term. And that's really the building block. If you think about more advanced searches, they're all sort of like composed by doing one or more of those other simpler searches that we just talked about. Okay, so that's that still sounds <laughs> the great explanation. It still sounds like there's a lot of machinery going on there. So, like when you're building such an engine, like what what are sort of the primary concerns, right? Um, that that you're sort of grappling with. Like obviously, performance is definitely got to be you know something you have to keep in mind. And you you mentioned also about writing uh, writing things to disk, right? So, like what are the concerns you must you must always have at the forefront when you're building something like this? So uh, performance, I would say, is, is, I would say, front of mind for most people building any sort of indexing solution, mainly because you're focused on utilizing the equipment that you have in an efficient way, right? At the end of the day, even if you say, well, it's fast enough for me, there's always somebody who might say, well, but you're using five machines. Could you, could you improve it a little bit and only use four? And we could save a little money, right? So sort of like performance is this like endless game, and, and it's really about figuring out where to stop at times is, 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 is often important. Now, with the search index in particular, I would say there's a couple things going on, right? We, I mentioned that when we're ingesting these documents into the index, we're going to figure out what those terms are. But you alluded to this earlier. Sometimes you want to find maybe not exact matches, but like similar terms, right? So one of the things that we do in full text search is we're going to sort of mutate and modify the terms that come in. And there's a various reasons you do this. So a simple example would be we put everything in lowercase, right? Because typically when you're matching these terms, you don't care about the case. And so in our index, we're just going to put everything there in lowercase. A second example that we use occasionally is something called stemming. 
So languages like English, you have various root forms of words and then like, you know, plural versions or adjective versions that have extra letters, right? And so what we do is we do some what we call stemming to take all those terms that are similar and basically transform, transform them into a single term that ends up in the index. Now, the reason I mentioned this in the context of performance is those kind of transformations are CPU-bound things, right? There's some, you know, string in memory. We're going to, like, run some algorithm on it, and then we're going to have some new string. And so keeping the CPU busy is, like, one aspect of what we're doing. But it's not the only one. Uh, if you think about it, we're also writing this index to disk. So one of the things that you also want to do is you say, well, I want to keep my I.O. channels busy writing the disk, right? If I'm not... If I can't saturate the disk, then what am I doing here? I should, I should be indexing faster. So one of the things you're also trying to do is keep your disk busy. And generally, I would say in a lot of, I'd say in most of the situations we encounter, that should be ultimately the limit, right? Like you, you, you want to try and be able to like, again, depending on your application, it should be possible to saturate the disk while you're building this index. Now, that's just at the indexing time. The second thing you have to deal with, oftentimes the same systems that are building these indexes are then answering queries for these indexes. So you have some query time performance as well. A good example there would be, if you think about how Google works, right? You run a search, they only show you the top 10 or whatever results on that first page, right? They're not giving you every document on the internet that uses that term, right? And so similarly, full text takes that approach of, I'm trying to give you the most relevant information. Now, that's just one kind of query that we can answer, though. Uh, people also use the same technology for different kinds of queries that are not really full text, right? You can use the same system to uh, support, you know, almost like, uh, I would say, more like relational style queries, right? Where you're trying to, uh, you know, find complex logical things of A and B or C uh, and so forth. Now, the reason I mention that is at query time, how many results are matching your query is going to consume memory, right? If you just think about it, if you have some grand system and it's, it's written to disk and you can page things in and out, if you're building a result set that's now, again, going to take up, you know, millions of records or whatever, that's something you have to consider as well. So drifting off topic here, but basically you're trying to balance several things from the performance perspective, CPU utilization, IO utilization, uh, you also need to think about space, right? So if you just think about text, a lot of text is repeated. A lot of these strings are repeated. A lot of the strings have overlapping substrings, right? So the ability to compress your data while you're building the index is also important. Uh, and like I said, the, one of the benefits there, it's sort of non-obvious, but if you just think about it, by making the index smaller, you can make it faster to answer queries later because more of the data is going to fit into, the, into memory, more of the data is going to fit into cache, and so forth, right? And you, all those things sort of compound uh, in, in the best case scenarios where you're really, you know, uh, achieving that optimal performance. So I have two sets of questions or two ways I could, I could look at this. One from a, from a sort of an operator standpoint and one from a user standpoint, right? So from a user standpoint, I know I'm looking for something in particular. The word may be... Is something that 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 could be misinterpreted or that, that has a, a, um, multiple meanings, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna know kind of like when you go search on, on Google, right? You know, you, you put in something there, you you're kind of half expecting to sort of have to tweak it a little bit to get you know sort of a finer grain results or something that is, that is closer to what you're looking for. So when when you're doing this sort of a, this ranking, really this prioritization of what you assume is the best match, the best guess what the users are looking for, like how how are you like, how are you deciding, right, what, what is most likely to be what the user wants? Sure. So uh, that aspect of full-text search relates to what we call uh, the scoring of the results, right? So once we determine that a particular document matches your search, then the question is, like, how do we score it and ultimately rank it so we can compare it with the other documents that matched? And our goal is to show you that what we perceive to be the highest ranking or most relevant documents for what you search for. Uh, the model that Blevy uses, which is the library that, that I've worked on uh, the most, uses a model called TF-IDF. Uh, so the TF stands for term frequency. The way to think about that is, in, the doc in one of the documents that we found, how often did that term occur? Right? You search for Johnny, and if the word Johnny occurred five times in the document, that's going to be more relevant than another document where it only occurred once. Okay? So that's like one component to it. The other part of it was called IDF, which stands for Inverse Document Frequency. The idea here is, if every document in the data set contained the term Johnny, 
what we can conclude is it's just not a very useful term for search, right? So, for example, if I index, let's say you have PDF scans of all of your bills, right? And they're all addressed to you. They're all going to match Johnny. So just searching for the word Johnny, it doesn't help us discriminate one document from another because it occurs in all of them. So what we do is we sort of penalize terms where uh, they occur in a large segment of the population because it's not contributing to the score being high. Now, that's why if you go back to the process you described, right? You, when you run search, users are sort of conditioned, okay, I'm going to run my search. Oh, that's not quite what I'm looking for. Let me add a term or let me change this term from this word to this other similar word. And what you're doing is you're actually sort of gaming the system to try and by adding or removing words, what you're trying to do is help the computer understand what's relevant to what you're looking for. And, but it's a human, in this case, it's a human being trying to sort of tweak the inputs to get the computer to do what you want, which is to find that thing that you happen to be looking for. In more advanced systems, right, that's where you try and understand what the user wants. So a good example I always come back to, uh, I used to use a, a, a library called Selenium. It was a JavaScript, it was like an end-to-end testing framework, I think, or like automated testing framework. Mm -hmm. And so when I would go to Google and I typed in Selenium, Google figured out that, okay, he means the testing framework, not the metal or the medication or whatever <laughs> else, you know, the word Selenium could mean to someone else in a completely different context, right? So mm -hmm. in more advanced search systems, what you're actually trying to do is go beyond just the textual analysis, right? But you're going to sort of like learn and have some deeper sense of the words. That gets beyond what Blevy can sort of do out of the box, um, but it's important to understand, like, that's really the game you're playing, right? The computer doesn't understand the terms, doesn't understand that that same term might mean two different things in a different context, but you're sort of, by adding additional terms, you're providing clarity. Like, if I search for Selenium test framework, right, then, and then even Blevy's going to figure out, okay, he means the testing framework, because what you'll find is the documents that happen to use all three of those terms and then get boosted appropriately are going to be the ones that match and, in my case, would be the ones I'm looking for. So one way that I think, and probably others too, is that I tend to sort of relate certain terms uh, with other terms and I sort to sort of, a, um, it's almost like in my head I'm creating sort of a, a graph, right, of, of how one document relates to another document that, that perhaps... I may not be thinking of right now or may not be remembering right now, right? But but I expect like the system that I'm querying that I'm asking for to be able to tell, tell, tell me like, hey, maybe you also meant this other thing, which is not an exact match of a term you put in, but I know these things are related and therefore you might find these other things, these other documents interesting. Right. So one of the things you can do is if you, so if you think about, if you go back to what is our search, right? When we're typing in a search, as we've described it, we're just typing in words in a box, right? But if you think about it, what you really, you could imagine like the documents that come in, right? You could think of those as also a list of terms, right? Not, not search terms, but just terms that occur in the document. But they have this added dimension that they're weighted by their frequency, right? Again, if the word Johnny occurred in this document five times, you could imagine it almost being like a vector, term Johnny, and then the magnitude five, right? So now you can say, okay, every document I can kind of think of as this vector or set of vectors, right? I'm trying not to get too mathematical here. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, the reason I bring that up is now there's sort of this parity between like a search is just a list of terms. That could be that same vector, but all of my frequency is just one, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the twist I'm going to make is there's a type of search called a more like this search, which is similar to what you just said. If, mm -hmm. the, if you like this document, you might like also the, like these other sets of documents. And the way we can do that is we can take that document and turn it into a search by taking that document set of terms, right, which is, again, just a list of terms, and it could be weighted by the frequency of those terms. So we can basically turn any document into a search for similar documents uh, by just sort of interpreting the list of terms a different way, right? So <laughs> that's exactly how you would implement uh, like a more like this search. Uh, it's just by saying, oh, that list of terms in the document, that could just be my search terms, and you, know, you could make it hidden from the user in just sort of a really elegant way of saying, oh, if you like this one, show me more that, that are similar to that. Mm, that's kind of clever, actually. So the the so the other side to look, uh, the other way to look at this is that now mentioned from a, from an operational standpoint. So when building my my index, right? So like 
what is the expected mechanism? What is the capacity in which I'm supposed to use Blevy, right, as the library, right? So, so I'm gonna be, you know, importing my library and I'm gonna be feeding it uh, all the document, like the entire body, whatever it is that I wanna be able to search, I'm gonna be feeding it a ton of documents, right? So basically I have right. to have a repository of things to search for, obviously, but then, you know, for you to be able to make this this, this process of saying, hey, this term uh, and things like it match these sets of documents. Are, are we feeding all of that raw text in? Yeah, so the interface exposed by Blubby is actually very simple. We have an index method which takes an interface. So you can literally take any other object you've constructed in Go and pass it in to the index method. Now that's both a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's a very simple interface, like anybody can do that, right? But the thing is, now you have to think about like what are you gonna do? What is Blubby gonna do behind the scenes with that like random object you passed in? As you might guess, since it's an interface, we do use reflection to sort of walk your document and try and build, I would say, the right thing, right? And this is, again, I would say this is one I'm open to admitting this is an aspect of Blavi I would change uh, in the future, right? So one of the things we found is we, we, we emulated Elasticsearch's model of just, just throw me a JSON object and I'll just do my best to consume it and make sense of it. And you can refine that later, but the goal is like you could just hand you something and it'll, and it'll try and do the right thing. So we have a lot of rules and magic, if you will, and that's, that's ultimately, I would say, a challenge to new users. But the reality is we have this object called a mapping. And the mapping is this sort of like side document, if you will, which describes how you want to take documents that you passed in and put them into the index. So the mapping is really where a lot of that logic gets expressed in Blevy today. And that's what allows us to say, okay, you want... You have a field called name, and we want to also have a field in the index called name. Or you have a field called description, let's also have a field in the index called description. Um, and again, the mapping allows you to do more exotic and complicated things. Uh, but again, one of the, the goals of Blevy was that default mapping, we take what you give us and try and do something intelligent. So you can, you know, in large part, take a, a, a simple map with strings as keys and values, and it'll do the right thing uh, in large part. Okay, so to effectively use you know a library like like Blevy, like from a developer standpoint, what sort of prerequisite knowledge do I have to sort of bring to bear? Like, is it just saying, hey, you know what, I'm just gonna be maybe I have a a a, a pool of documents, PDFs, whatever, right? I'm just gonna be feeding into to the index, um, um, and that's it. That's as simple as that. Or do I have to really kind of know how to feed the data in to really sort of use it the right way? I always recommend users start at the end, right? Think about your users and think about what types of searches are they going to be running? And in particular, think about not just what kinds of searches, but what, what's the data type of the result? So let me make that concrete. If, if I have a collection of books and you run a search, the results that you get back could be, could be books themselves, it could be authors, it could be comments about a book, it could be not the book as a whole, but it could be pages within the book. Like those are all possible things a user might want back. And you sort of need to think through like what's, how do users want to think about their results? What's that unit of result? Because Blevy search results always come back in that unit. Like this page matched, this book matched, and so forth. So that's one of the first things. You just want to think about your data and the data model. Again, you can do complex hybrid things, but you just want to know that up front that that's, that's what you want to do. Once you've done that, you're going to sort of have a sense of what fields you need, right? So things like if I'm indexing books, books generally have titles, right? Or they might have the full content depending on what your data set, right? Maybe you have book reviews and so you have, like said, comments about books. So all those, that'll dictate what fields you're going to use. And then once you've determined like what kinds of queries people are going to run and you have a sense of what the, the, the fields that you want in your index are going to look like, now you can sort of work back and say, okay, what's the right index to build? In particular, you would need to know additional things like, if my titles are all in English, I can take advantage of that and index a certain way. If I have in, uh, titles in a bunch of different languages, I might need to bring some different approaches to the table to make search work well in that case, right? So I would say certainly uh, the language of your text uh, would be an important detail that you would want to think through in advance. Um, and again, if it's, if it's heterogeneous, then you need to plan on like budget even more because it's going to be more complex to, to handle. And then the other thing would be to think through how you want to combine full text with other things. Um, so a good example would be 
oftentimes in your data set, you have other strings that you still want to index, but you don't want to do full text-like things on them. So the good example would be like identifiers, right? Maybe there's an ISBN number for every book, which looks a lot like a string, and there's a lot of benefits to indexing it as a string, but you don't generally do partial matches on those. You just want to do an exact lookup or nothing at all, right? So Blevy has support for those types of strings as well. Uh, and then, again, another ancillary things, we support indexing numbers, we support indexing dates, and we support indexing geopoints. Those are, I would say, I mean, they can be used on their own as a core capability, but what we find is they're really useful to use in conjunction with full text, right? So you might say, if all the things I'm indexing are newspaper articles and they all have a date associated with them, I might want to limit my date to, okay, I want to search for you know, Clinton, but I want to search just in the last year, not in the last four years, right? So that's an additional thing that you would be able to filter on. And then even more powerful is when you want to use those additional data points to adjust the score. Maybe what I really want is not to limit it to the most recent year, but I want to sort of boost the score of documents that are within the last year. So that won't preclude an older document from coming back at all, but it means newer documents are going to sort of rank higher. So there's, there's, you need to give some thought to how you want to incorporate other types of data. Like I said, I mentioned we, we have numeric range, date range, and then like geo boundaries um, as well. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and secure remote access to any database, any server, on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. One of the things I found interesting was that you could decide as a developer which sort of a storage mechanism you could sort of use for storing, you know, things like the index. So I remember Bolt <laughs> was a Bolt DB was was one of the options, right. and, and then there were others. But recently, it sounds like you started navigating away from sort of that interchangeability yes. for some reasons. Can you, you can, let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. So you, as you pointed out, when we first conceived of Blavi, one of the things that we was sort of new and different that we were bringing to the table was this idea that we had this notion of an indexing scheme, which would take all of the index and be able to sort of represent it as keys and values. Now, if we could represent the entire index as just keys and values, what it meant was any key value store. And at the time, 2014 was like a hotbed of key value stores, right? There was like LevelDB, RocksDB, all this stuff, all excitement going on about key value stores. And so we thought, this is great. Even if we choose wrong now, we can just plug in a faster key value store later and that'll solve all of our problems. That was the initial uh, idea that we conceived, right? And to be fair, it did allow a lot of flexibility early on in the project. A good example was at the time, BoltDB was one of the only pure Go key value stores uh, at the time. And pure Go was, again, a benefit to us because we'd already been burned by Seago and some other projects. So the idea that, you know, there was sort of this pure Go, you could use the go get command without having to set up a bunch of other C libraries first and it would work, right? So the fact that we had support for Bolt2B was huge early on. But as I alluded to, it, it all revolved around the fact that the index could be distilled down to sets of keys and values. And what we learned over time was it didn't matter which key value store we used, it was that encoding itself, that representation of all the index as keys and values, that in and of itself was not a particularly good encoding for either for storage size in terms of writing the index, but also in terms of query time, being able to answer queries quickly. And so, as I said, we learned basically, because Couchbase, as you know, ultimately wrote another key value store called Moss, 
I spoke about Moss at GopherCon, and, and Moss is, is great for everything that it is, but it was still just another faster key value store that ultimately didn't solve that problem. So coming out of Moss in the 2017-2018 timeframe, as you said, we started a new key value store called, or sorry, new indexing scheme uh, called Scorch. And the real, like, the insight was basically we, the project had grown up. Like, in the beginning, people loved the flexibility that I can just pick and choose whatever key value store I want. What we found later was users didn't care what key value store. They want it to work. Like, it should do everything it says on the box. And it should be as fast as you can make it go. And it should be as small as you can make it go. And people, like, they want us to own the implementation of the bytes on disk. They don't want to worry about that. They don't want to have to upgrade a, a new version of LevelDB in the future to fix some issue. Like, they want us to own those problems. And so the approach basically involved, okay, let's set this old index scheme aside. We're going to have a new index scheme, which is not built on top of a key value store. It's going to just write its own representation of the bytes directly to disk. Yeah, we have to own that piece now. And, and that, you know, was something we were comfortable with doing. And we had to sort of engineer that. Uh, and I would say, you mentioned that talk I gave at GopherCon UK. I really enjoyed giving that talk because, as you said, I tried to not just sugarcoat it and show you the finished product and say, look, look, we went off to rewrite this thing, and here it is. It's awesome. I mean, in a nutshell, that's how a lot of tech talks are, right? And I felt that this wasn't honest, right? It, took, it was hard getting to where we got, and I thought the more interesting story was, was sort of going through all those things. So, again, for any of your readers interested, I think that it is a talk worth going back. I hope that holds up over time and uh, people still enjoy it. So that did lead us to bringing in Scorch. Uh, at the time I gave that talk, Scorch was still pretty new, uh, but Scorch is production ready today. It's still not the default with Blevy for reasons that are, again, disappointing. <laughs> Blevy has like a lot of early Go projects. It got popular before there was good versioning and even vendoring. It predate even vendoring, right? So the trouble we have now is there's a lot of people that have adopted it that are using the old index scheme so we, we need to be mindful of them. We need to sort of have an upgrade path that doesn't break things. Uh, and so again, does a, Go modules is like a hot topic for Blevy right now. Uh, and that's one of the things that at Bluge Labs, I hope to spend a lot of time working on for Blevy. So anyway, that's where we are today. And that's why, again, we all recommended people using Blevy to use the Scorch index scheme, even though it's not the default yet as of today right yeah let's let's dive a little bit deeper into the the, the whole uh module thing and how that has affected the project is it more of a sort of a having to make sure you don't break uh, other people's worlds that's a big concern of ours so again we we've, we've we've taken this approach for a long time of uh i mean go's model initially was like yeah you don't change it you don't break apis you just you just you know you, you just never change it once it's popular that's it like you can add new methods, but pretty much any other change is going to be a breaking change for somebody. And so you'll see that in the Blevy code base. We have like, you know, the function name advanced with some new signature, right? Or, you know, all kinds of naming schemes that aren't even consistent across time now in terms of how we've attempted to do that. So the first thing with Go modules is, yeah, we're, we're mindful that people have adopted Blevy without any notion of Go modules, without any notion of versions. Uh, they're all just sort of like living off of master or some commit that they've checked out at some point in time, right? And we know we, we want to graduate from that. But it's, it's, it can be a difficult challenge because, uh, as I mentioned, Blevy's been supported by Couchbase and a handful of other companies over the years. And so it would be crazy to like break it for the people that have like put their money into it, right? So first and foremost, the people that have financially supported Blevy, we need to make sure they are happy using Blevy, right? So that's one of the things. But the Go community as a whole has moved forward to modules, right? And so we can't ignore that as well. So we're, it's one of those things where we're trying to balance multiple needs. Uh, I think we have a plan going forward now. Uh, what we've done, uh, just to be open with you, is we actually have a fork at the moment uh, where we're able to sort of experiment with modules. Uh, so we have a, a fork that is sort of a more modules ready. And, and I should go a little deeper into why modules is problematic. So the simple one that a lot of people are already aware of is once you have a version 2, you can start having some additional challenges, right? And the reason is with Go modules, the version becomes a part of the package identifier in, in the URL space. In a project like Blevy, we have a lot of nested sub-packages, which if you think about it means all of our internal imports have to be rewritten when the major version changes. And that then, again, becomes like for people that have not adopted modules, now there's this like 
issue, right? Because if you're not using modules, you have import paths that are referring to things. And I know that the Go tooling, they've added a bunch of stuff to the Go tooling to sort of mitigate that. I don't want to reopen this whole can of worms, but let's just leave it that ideally with Go, with Blevy, what we would do is we would release version one today with the old index scheme, and we would release version two tomorrow with the new index scheme. That's sort of our vision of how this would work. So that everybody with backwards compatibility issues stays on 1.0. Everybody that wants to use Scorch and the new index scheme starts with 2 and goes forward. That's kind of where we're headed. But what we found is one of the challenges is that because it, 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 like all of those nested sub-packages are a little bit of a liability, right? So some, a good example would be one of the recommend, recommendations from the Go community is, oh, just copy your module over into a V2 folder. Well, if you just look at the, the size, first of all, it is, I'm glad you're laughing because I find that suggestion just laughable on the face of it. But then if you just look at Blevy and the number of packages and submodules, it would be like hundreds of files a second copy of. And so it's just, it's a complete non-starter. But on that topic, that, that also is partly some stuff that we need to clean up, right? Our package, our module, if you will, the, the package was fine as it was conceived, but as a Go module, it's now too many things in one module, right? And we would benefit from the ability to version those independently. So I mentioned the Scorch index scheme. That's one that's going to be broken out as a separate module. And the benefit there is that we'll be able to version that independently of the, the top level of Blevy. Second, there's another layer, if you peel back the onion even more, inside of Scorch, there's the actual file disk file format we call Zap. And that is going to be broken out as a separate module. So just by having these three independent pieces that can be versioned independently is going to be a huge benefit for the Blevy project. Uh, I can give you a very concrete example. If you're someone like Couchbase and you've shipped a version of your product and it's out there, it's, it's not the cloud world entirely, right? There's customers running it on their actual hardware somewhere, right? <laughs> yep. And so now, you know, and you've told the, you've told the customer like, oh yeah, we're going to support that for three years or, or whatever their promises are, right? You you have, you're in the position of actually having to support that and stand <laughs> behind that, right? So that what that means is when you ship the next version of Couchbase, you still got to be able to read that old format. Even if you have some new, faster, even more efficient format, you got to keep being able to read and serve queries from those older data, or at least have the ability to migrate it if you, if you choose to. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a capability that Blevy really lacks today, right? You can't do a single build of Blevy in a single executable that reads and writes two different formats, even though the format has evolved over time. Uh, and so the good news is modules actually can be a part of the solution for that. We can import multiple versions of Scorch, multiple versions of Zap. That's supported by Go modules as, as sort of one of its core tenants. Uh, and so that, with a, there, again, uh, that makes it sound simple. Is there's still some engineering behind it to, to make that work too. Mm -hmm. But that's our vision. That's going to allow some of the, the really you know, important adopters of Blevy mm -hmm. to gain an important feature. And it sort of gets us all on board with Go modules and gets things going forward. Uh, by having that fork that I mentioned, we're able to sort of experiment, and if we break things, we just, you know, try and unbreak them and right. go from there. And then once we have that final picture of like this is our desired end state, then we're gonna we don't want that fork to be long term, right? This is sort of an experimental thing that we want to then sort of merge back in uh, and have a healthy Blevy project going forward. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're sort of working out some of the issues you've had under the hood, right? But from a feature set standpoint. Which kind of ties into sort of my next question around sustainability, right? Like, what is it that you're looking to do? Where are you looking to take Blevy next? You know, be it, you know, in terms of features as an offering, are you, how are you looking to support the project and keep it maintainable and sustainable? How, how are you planning on doing that? So one of the things, as I said, would be the versioning of it. We've never had a 1.0 release, and I mentioned this started back in 2014, right? So it's just sort of like we're not a healthy project in terms of like having regular releases, so that's one of my main goals. Like, let's have two. Let's get on the release train model. Let's have two releases a year that are like well thought out and planned, right? What that'll allow adopters to do is stop running off of master, which is what everyone's doing today. They find some bug, we got to fix it on master, and they re-roll their new release. It's just not a healthy state, right? So once we have regular releases, that enables the adopters to say, let's stick to released versions, right? And then let's support. Let's put. Let's backport bug fixes to released versions and approach it in like a sane way. And then that maintenance is expensive, right? That's where what we're, at Blue's Labs, what we're looking for is the companies that ultimately sponsor the work. That's some of the things that, that make sense to pay money for, right? Is maintaining older releases for a period of time because that's where there's the value add for the company. Whereas the, the bleeding edge stuff is really what, what gets developers uh, excited. So regular releases is, I would say, one of the, the main things that we want to do. 
by adopting Go modules, that'll, I think, get us more approachable. Like one of the big issues we have today is because we've sort of lagged with Go modules, like I would say half of all new users come in and, and they say, oh, when I do a Go build, it, it's broken. And I say, no, Go build works fine. I, I show them and they're like, oh, well, I have modules turned on and it, and it pulls in <laughs> some arbitrary older version of one other library, right? And it's like, it gets the right version of everything except one thing. And it's because of a tag and it chooses the latest tag version. So anyway, All right. so it, that'll, that'll be a big help as well for, for getting new people on board is just having proper module support, I think is important. And there's a handful of other things, documentation and tutorials and things are all things. I mean, I guess every open source probably would list those on things that they could do or should do better on. So that's, that's a handful of things. I would say, you know, we've been successful in, the, I would say, the full text use cases. Another thing that we're, we've identified is sometimes people are using Blavi not for full text. They, I mentioned that ability to do exact string matching. Mm-hmm. Uh, People sometimes push that to the limit. They say, well, I've got, I've got 100 fields that I want to do exact matching on, but I want to do complex ands and ors on 100, across 100 different fields. No text analysis, right? So none of the interesting full text stuff, but just the core actually works really well for that. But what we found is there's th- additional optimizations we can put in to make the index even smaller and even faster. One of the projects I worked on this summer, can't go too much into the details, but one of the benefits we got out of it was we were able to just by tweaking the customer's settings and a few code changes inside of Blavi, we're able to cut their index sizes in half, right? And they were already talking about terabytes. So this is a useful thing to like cut that number in half. Yeah. So that's an area where we'd like to find out how people are really using Blavi. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I said, early on, I was only seeing how Couchbase used Blavi. I've gotten a little bit of wider vision to see how other people are using it. And we wanted to take that further, right? I'm sure there are other companies out there that are using Blavi and please reach out to me. Uh, it's, it's a great time to get involved and help me understand your use case. And that's really where we're headed is just to make sure that the whole community of people using Blavi are all being heard and, and you know, we build this thing that's useful for people. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, folks should definitely be uh, reaching out to, uh, to Marty. And, and so how, how many other folks work with you on this project at this point? Uh, so I'm the only one that's like, full-time working on this through Blue's Labs mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, other companies that use Blubby all contribute and support in a way. So mm-hmm. Couchbase has two additional programmers that are full-time. Uh, I would say they're full-time on their product, which heavily uses Blubby, right? So that's mm-hmm. still not the same as being 100% on Blubby, right? They, right? they make, I would say, significant contributions to the project, but they, even they would be honest and say, well, we're not, we're not full-time on Blubby. So the other companies that I've contracted with as well, I would say they have varying degrees of expertise in Blavi, like many companies, right? When you use a library, whether you intended to or not, you end up learning a little bit more about it than you probably wanted, right? Because you had to support it. You had to figure out some, some corner case, some issue. So we do have other developers contributing. Uh, and we have a, a good amount of, I would say, like random one-off contributions that we get from the community. I don't have the page open in front of me, but there's a good, there's a long list of contributors to the project over time at this point. I think we'd be well served to make that, uh, clean that up a bit is what I would say. And what I mean is oftentimes you get a one-off contribution from someone. It doesn't meet any of the guidelines that we generally follow for the code quality. It's not designed the way we'd have designed it, but it does work. You know what I mean? So like, this is a very common problem. And I'm sure all open source developers face this now. It's like, well, what do we do? We, we could say no, because it doesn't really fit with everything else. We'd love to say yes, because it does add another useful feature. And then there's the middle ground of what we ideally would like, well, maybe we could like clean it up a little bit and then massage it. And that's really where, you know, the, that's really the hard politics of open source, I think, where you, in terms of how you cope with that, how you deal with that. There's all kinds of different philosophies there, and it's an area where we could still improve. I think, like many projects, you have con- contributions that come in that are very successful, and you have other contributions that come in, and people feel burned or don't feel like they got their change in, and that's that's a, that's a reality of it, too. Right. So having done all of this really beautiful work on this project with Go, right? Have you ever had an instance where you thought, oh, maybe Go is just not the right tool for the job, right? Or has it, have you been completely happy with, with, with the language for, the, for this particular task? I've given a talk at the DC meetup that we spoke about earlier about, in particular, with memory management in Go and how that relates to optimizing application performance. 
And I think Blevy is maybe somewhat unique in this regard, but if you, if you think about all the stuff we talked about earlier about how this search engine works, one of the things you realize is it's a lot of just loops within loops within loops, right? So what I mean by that is, okay, for indexing a document, well, I'm just going to loop over all my documents is the first loop. Now, my documents all have fields. I got to loop over all those fields. Now, for each term that I find inside of those fields, I got to loop over that and do some work. So you have this like loop structure, right? And what this, the downside is, you write your API in a really clean way the first time, right? You just sit down at, a, at your editor and you write the API and this is nice and clean. And then you find like, oh, well, it turns out every time I call this function, it has to allocate something to return it, right? So your simple API that you just thought up in the head ends up being one that not only performs poorly, but it's magnified across all these loops. And so when you look at your profile, your CPU profile, you see, oh, I'm spending all of my time allocating memory and handing it back. Now there are techniques that, you know, you've, find a million Go talks on like techniques to avoid that. And in my experience, it gets a little frustrating is when I have to, in my mind, clutter the API, I have to add a new argument to my API so that instead of always allocating something, it could optionally reuse the thing that I've passed in. So now my API has gotten cluttered and it just hurts readability. The thing I love about Go is how readable the code is. I can pull up code I wrote two years ago and it's pretty straightforward, just like it, the code does what it says, right? It's, it's, that's, that's what's to, to like about Go. And my concern is the memory management hurts that, right? It just sort of, it, it co it's code that we write that, that ends up, I have to remember, like, why did we do it this complex way? Oh, that's right, it was a performance optimization. And, you know, the pushback is like, oh, well, you know, in so many cases, that's just premature. But what we find is like, for some reason, in all the code I need, it's not premature optimization. It's like, it's what we have to do to sort of get it to the, place where it's meeting the metrics. So if I have one concern with Go for me, it's it's not that I don't, I don't mind garbage collection in principle, and I think the improvements to the garbage collector could actually address uh, some of the issues or some like mid-stack inlining that, that would solve some of the concerns. But it's, it's, it's just one of those minor gripes where it's sort of like, you know, I have to write code in a less clear way in order to get it to perform well. And that's sort of like, that's not the spirit of Go. The spirit of Go is like, you just write it in this really clear way and you know, you just run it on faster hardware. That's sort of like more of the spirit of how Go programmers think about things. Cool. So I was going to ask sort of uh, uh, um, what's what's next for you, but you've been touching on that, you know, a couple of <laughs> times, so, you know, with obviously with, with a new startup and, and you being pretty much full time on, on this project now, that's, that is an effect what you're going to be sticking with in, in the short term. Yeah, my goal is to really make Blubby, I, I feel like it's an open source project that, we we got a, we made a really good technology, right? And that's evidenced by the fact that companies have adopted it and are using it, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, the technology is sound, but uh, the the community, the project part of it has sort of just lagged a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And it's mainly because when you have, and this is my opinion, obviously, when you have companies that are sponsoring open source, like they always have a little bit of a selfish pull, right? They're only they're more concerned with their issues than anyone else. <laughs> When I was at Couchbase, you would find some people saying like, oh, when I use Blevy, in this use case, it's, it's slow. Or even better, the performance optimization that Couchbase put in makes it even slower for someone else using a different <laughs> use case, right? So that's a good example of how I, I just felt like to get Blevy to that next level, it needs a little bit of an independence. It needs a little bit of, you know, someone focused just on the project as a whole, really clean up the issues, clean up the pull requests. You know, we just, we have a lot of backlog of stuff, which is great. It's again, evidence of how much interest there is. But if we can't have a system in place where we continually make progress and people have confidence that we're making progress, at some point, we're going to find we're behind the curve, right? And that people have switched off. Someone will fork Blevy and be doing a better job of it than we are, right? And so my goal is really to sort of like try and step up and provide some of the stuff that's been missing Again, the biggest challenge for me is those regular releases. Uh, that's a that's difficult to do, and I say that because I keep promising people Blovey 1.0, and I keep not delivering it. <laughs> so uh, that's how I'm asking people to measure our progress: is hey, are we making regular releases? And then how good are those releases in terms of the features and bugs fixes that you want? Right? Mm -hmm. If I think if we hit those marks, then the people that that invest in in Blues Labs are going to be happy with what we're doing. 
Yeah, I think uh, it's it's really important to sort of shine a light on this because a lot of uh, uh, projects, especially the popular ones, are often sort of uh, run by folks who are not full time on those things, right? Maybe they have a day job, um, maybe you know they're the employer supporting the project, maybe not, and maybe they have to get support from from elsewhere. But it's rarely do you have you know folks that are sort of dedicated right to to the the project and, and its sort of longevity. Uh, and I think you know basically with with you being sort of full time on, on Blevy, I think uh, that gives us a much greater chance of a success you know as you envision it so yeah i wish you the best of luck uh, um, with thank that you. project for sure thank you it's very exciting and uh yeah i just getting started so uh it's all 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 bright future in front of me right now <laughs> awesome awesome well marty it's been a pleasure having you on the show um as always we always get into some interesting conversations i hope uh, to see you face to face again at, at some point Absolutely. in the coming uh, weeks and months but yeah, it's been great having you on the show and I hope you had a good time. I hope our audience had a good time listening to this awesome project. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Johnny. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us and go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Changelaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelawmaster in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.